Hey friends, this is Linda and you're listening to Calling Water. Each week on our podcast, we're taking a passage from the Bible and asking ourselves two questions. What does it mean? And what does it call us to do? In today's episode, Constantly in Prayer, we're looking at the story of Matthias being chosen as an apostle in Acts chapter 1 verses 12 through 26 and how we can develop the habit of talking with God on a regular basis. Let's get started. For those of you who grew up in the church or have been in proximity to people who have, you might have noticed that there are a handful of phrases that only churchgoers use. Out of context, they tend to be some of the most bizarre string of words put together, but for those of us who grew up with it as a second language of sorts, we don't even think about why these things might be confusing to people. And this jargon ranges from benign sentiments like, oh, I was so blessed today, to more problematic things like pointing an accusatory finger at someone and calling them a backslider for missing church one week. The one that I hear used the most, however, is one that sounds super spiritual, which is another word we need to clarify sometime but is usually a catch-all phrase for whenever someone wants to say no, but feels like they can't. You know where I'm going with this, right? If someone at church comes up to you and asks if you'd like to serve in a specific way, what is your default answer? Even without thinking about it, our automated response is usually, I'll pray about it. And we Christians utilize this so profusely and shamelessly sometimes. The strangest usage I've ever come across was as someone's RSVP to my wedding. Yeah, a wedding. One family friend wrote in an email that she had a lot going on at the moment, so she would pray about it and let me know if she could come to the wedding. And then she didn't, so I guess God told her not to go. And I'm not sharing this story because I'm bitter that she missed the wedding because, yeah, life happens. But the fact that she had to pray about RSVPing to a wedding made me wonder about how she made other decisions in her life. Not that I'm throwing shade on the concept of praying about things because the Bible tells us repeatedly to pray about all things for every season, especially in community with others, and to do so with confidence and thanksgiving. But I have an issue with the deceitfulness of saying you'll pray about something when really it's just because you don't want to do something. So what you're communicating is, I want to say no, but if by divine intervention, God gives me some kind of concrete sign that I should say yes, then I'll let you know. And 100%, the people who say they will pray about something disappear and never get back to you about the original question. So let's talk about that today. What's so awful about saying you'll pray about it? Is praying for a sign wrong? And are we even allowed to do things without expressly asking God's permission first? Well, today's Bible passage in Acts chapter 1 is a great place to start looking for answers to those questions. In this passage, we find Jesus' original disciples, now called apostles, gathered together with other followers of Jesus, totaling about 120 people, the Bible tells us. 
The main item on the agenda for this meeting is who they should get to replace Judas Iscariot, the one who had sold Jesus out and then killed himself as a result of that guilt and remorse. The Apostle Peter is the main spokesperson in this meeting, and if you're following along with me in the passage, you'll find that Peter's argument for having to replace Judas is rather unusual. Instead of saying, hey everyone, we need to find someone to take Judas's place. There were 12 of us when we started, and it would be great to get it back to 12 again because it's such a symbolic number for Israel. Which is true. The 12 sons of Jacob that became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel represent a wholeness which Peter and the gang want to emulate probably. But what he says instead is to quote verses from two different psalms. He first quotes Psalm 69 verse 25 that says, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And Psalm 109 verse 8 that says, May another take his place of leadership. Now, these two psalms seem like contradictory arguments, right? One says to leave his place deserted. The other one says to fill his place with someone else. And these aren't even prophetic texts. Both of these psalms in their original contexts are prayers to God asking for vindication against an enemy. And for Peter, this enemy is Judas. Now we can imagine just for a second all of the conflicting emotions Peter and the other disciples were experiencing. Judas was like a brother to them for three years. So in bringing up these specific psalms, Peter is imploring the crowd to reframe their view of Judas in a sense. He's saying, he's not your friend. He's not your brother. He's an undeniable enemy whom we need to replace. And there was a singular criterion for who should take his place. Verses 21 through 22 tells us they wanted someone who had been with them since the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And while we mostly talk only about the 12 in the inner circle, Jesus had many followers who fit the bill. So somehow the group narrowed it down to two people, Joseph, also known as Barsabbas, and Matthias. Now what happens next is illuminating. Previously in the passage, we read that the disciples all joined together constantly in prayer. And they say that in verse 14. Now, we don't know if that meant that they prayed nonstop or if they prayed in regular intervals. But the point is, they brought this matter before God constantly in prayer. But when it comes time to make the decision, this is what the text tells us. In verses 24 through 26, we read, Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, isn't that interesting? They had been praying about this singular issue for an extended period of time. So by the logic of, we'll pray about it, the outcome should have been, God spoke to us and the chosen one is Matthias. But even after all that prayer, the decision is still theirs to make. And then 
they literally roll the dice. So does that mean God didn't answer their prayers? Absolutely not. What this story shows us is that God had given them and given us this incomprehensible gift of free will. He gives us the freedom to choose and make decisions. And of course, humans have this annoying habit of repeatedly making poor choices. But look what happens when an individual or a group of people are constantly in prayer. They can make a decision even without receiving a clear answer from God. And I'm of the opinion that they cast lots not because they wanted to leave things to chance, but because they knew that both Joseph and Matthias were excellent candidates, and it was their way of not showing favoritism by putting it up to an official vote. So what does this mean for us? Firstly, I think it's high time that we eradicated I'll pray about it from our vocabulary. Because let's face it, This phrase is purely demonstrative. You're either saying it as a roundabout way of saying no, or you really do want to pray about it, in which case you don't need to announce it. After all, isn't that how Jesus taught us how to pray in the Gospels? But it's more than just not using I'll pray about it as a way to sidestep difficult conversations. Going back to the example of saying this when someone asks you to serve in ministry or take on a different role or even something unrelated to church altogether, it it is a great baseline to prayerfully consider things for sure. Because sadly, many leaders have been known to overstep their spiritual authority and eventually start guilt-tripping people into compliance. And maybe you've experienced this before. So I'm not calling us to simply say yes to everything because that would be disastrous. But we do need to examine our motivations. What is at the root of our hesitation? Is it laziness? Is it fear? Or is it just something you have no interest in? Whatever the explanation, God gives us the ability to reason and then arrive at an answer. Here's a helpful illustration. Kids usually need to ask their parents permission to do lots of things, right? Can I play with my iPad? Can I go to a friend's house? But there are also plenty of things that kids can and should do without having to ask permission first because these are inherently good things. Is it necessary for a kid to ask, dad, is it okay if I'm nice to my brother? Or mom, can I please clean my room? Like No kid would ask that, right? Likewise, we know what God desires of us. We don't need to pray about what we already know is something that would please God and that we are more than capable of doing. So if we are to follow the example of the early church, our job is to kind of de-ritualize decision-making. I mean, it's okay to be unsure and take the time you need to carefully think about your next steps because we lean on God's guidance and we trust in his ability to speak to us, but we also trust that he has already given to us the tools and discernment to faithfully act in response. But here's the caveat. Wise decisions are born out of what the disciples did which is they were constantly in prayer. 
One of the more famous Bible memory verses you might know is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, which says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And by no means does pray continually mean that all God's people must live a monastic lifestyle where prayers are uttered 24-7. It's more so to make prayer a part of everyday things. And what is prayer? Ultimately, it's talking to God. That's it. So often prayer feels like a spiritual chore because we have these preconceived ideas of what prayer looks like or sounds like. It has to be on our knees in a specific place and must always be eloquent and lengthy. And why do we do that with prayer? Is this how we engage in conversation with each other, for example? I mean, can you imagine talking with a friend in always the same place and time, using the same words, and then furthermore, you reached out to them only when you needed something? Prayer, like every other conversation, happens in a variety of ways, and there's really no wrong way as long as it's God on the other end. You could recite the Lord's Prayer, for example. You could read from a book of prayers. You could pray quietly in your head. You can pray aloud in a group. You might even journal it, or maybe it's a casual recognition of something you're thankful for today. And sometimes you might just sit quietly because you have no words. We never need a reason to pray, just like we never need a reason to get in touch with a friend. We pray because we love and are loved by God. And because of this relationship, we are given agency in our everyday lives about the choices we make. And when we adopt this culture of being constantly in prayer, We will be more in tune with the will of God and how we can act according to those daily reveals he gives us. So speaking of prayer, why don't we pray together right now? God, we just want to call out in ourselves the times when we were insincere in our prayers to you. For the times we used praying about it as an excuse to get out of something or as a justification for a personal choice we made that had nothing to do with you. Thank you for reminding us that you have given us enormous freedom to make the decisions we want to in our lives, but remind us also that those decisions should develop from a lifetime and a lifestyle of prayer and not just a singular moment of prayer when we need you. Help us to talk to you regularly and listen for the ways you talk with us too. In Jesus' name, amen.